0: Welcome to Future Proof, the marketing podcast from Saeed Business School, University of Oxford, and Kantar, the marketing insights and consulting company. In each episode, we'll have a frank discussion with industry experts to help brands and business
1: leaders navigate the changing landscape of marketing, and hopefully dispel some myths and misconceptions along the way. I'm Julie Coleman, Chief Research Officer for Kantar.
2: I'm Andrew Stephen, the L'Oreal Professor of Marketing and Associate Dean of Research at the Said Business School.
1: The topic for our
2: Hey, I'm
3: Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass?
1: podcast today is the interaction between consumers and technology, and how technology is increasingly taking on more human-like features. And the question is, what will the impact be in terms of how technology becomes more and more invasive and more and more pervasive in our lives in the future?
2: So, our guest today is Dr. Rhonda Hattie, who's an Associate Professor of Marketing at the side Business School at the University of Oxford and and, and um, one of my colleagues. Uh, Rhonda does some really fascinating research on um, this this topic of the intersection of consumers and technology and, and thinks a lot about um, sensory marketing, but in this sort of tech-enabled digital uh, world in which we all now live. So Rhonda, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. The question I sort of wanted to kick off on was if we think about what Julie was saying in terms of technology getting more human and and that's you know interactive for, for consumers if we start with one of those aspects and it's voice so Cantar consulting for example um, put out some research recently that uh, s- that predicted by 2021 1.8 billion consumers around the world are going to be using voice assistants uh, and, and those types of devices so alexa siri etc so that's pretty massive market penetration of that technology and that type of interacting with technology in a pretty short period of time. So with with that in mind, what, is, what does this mean? Is, is voice just another interface, just as we've had and do have typing and, and touch and gestures? Or is there something more to voice uh, at, at this intersection of consumers and technology?
0: First, I think it's important to realize that conversation and the art of conversation, all of history has been designated for interpersonal interactions. So we speak to our loved ones, we speak to friends, we speak to colleagues, and now all of a sudden we're speaking to products, and so that in itself is a pretty major shift and leads us to personify these devices uh, in ways we haven't in the past, particularly when those voices sound like humans do. And this might affect consumers in a few different ways. Interestingly, it can act as a bit of a double-edged sword because on the one hand, when a device has a voice and you're speaking to it, you interact with it more naturally, converse more naturally, uh, react more positively to it, but at the same time, it also, for consumers, increases their expectations that the device will have empathy and understand them, just as a human would, and that leads them, if the voice-activated device doesn't respond or doesn't understand, to actually really be disappointed due to kind of expectancy violations if they're not understood. So just imagine even when you call one of those kind of voice-activated call centers and it doesn't understand what you're saying, how frustrating it is, right? It'd be a lot less frustrating if you weren't actually speaking to it. But the fact that you're speaking to it and have those expectations that it's going to understand you as a human would means you're more likely to get disappointed if it falls short. I think another interesting thing to think about is with these devices, not only are we hearing a voice, but we are also speaking out loud and making decisions and choices out loud. Uh, which previous research might suggest can increase consumers' self-awareness. And so, as an analogous example, previous research has found that uh, consumers who order pizzas online versus by phone, tend to order weirder toppings, are more likely to order extra, extra cheese. Um, But when you're actually saying that out loud, particularly to a person, you tend to uh, be a little more self-conscious, a little bit more self-aware. And so it's interesting to think about how that might pan out with these voice-activated devices, which aren't human, but certainly sound human, and are asking us to voice our decisions as opposed to simply typing it out.
2: This is really interesting in terms of the like product ordering and, and and speaking out loud. So so what would what would your prediction be if if so if I get the if I'm talking to the Domino's pizza robot and saying out loud, am I going to be wanting to order the healthier pizza or the or, or the unhealthy pizza versus well, what <laughs> I would do privately, which would of course be the unhealthy pizza. <laughs>
0: Uh, Well, it's interesting because to the extent that you develop a certain level of intimacy and familiarity with your voice-activated device, think about sort of the familiarity you might have with a spouse or a partner, you then stop caring about what they think if you're ordering the extra, extra cheese. But if it's the first time you're interacting with, let's say, a specific kind of domino pizza agent, then, you know, the effect of their social presence might actually make you make more defendable decisions when you're actually speaking them than if you were not speaking them out loud.
1: That's a really interesting point, actually, and combining that with your first point, which is around the fact that voice actually increases our expectations for empathy and understanding. In the context of what the implications are for brands, it sounds like there's almost a curve of, at the beginning of a brand's interactions via voice with consumers, there's a risk that they won't be able to fulfill consumers' expectations, but if they can persist and build a relationship, it sounds like actually there could be some tremendous upside at the, you know, further down the line with that relationship in terms of the way that the consumer will trust and and the things that the consumer will be willing to do and interact with, with that brand.
0: I, I think that's exactly right. And so I think the downside of being disappointed is actually going to be attenuated as the technology advances more and, these voice-activated dis- uh, assistants become better and better at actually understanding and responding appropriately. Because it's only when they're unable to understand or unable to respond appropriately that we then get uh, dissatisfied. Uh, and I think for brands, it's a very exciting space because you know, for for a long time, brands have been trying to humanize their brands in certain ways, typically through brand mascots, whether it be. Mr. Clean or the Eminem characters or Betty Crocker <laughs> and now they have an opportunity to really evoke that personality through their brand You know, they could do it through a rugged voice a playful voice a sophisticated voice depending on um, What sort of personality they're trying to convey and so this is really exciting way for them to do that. We
2: talked about voice, but there are other human aspects being added into technology. So other senses, for example, being being activated, I suppose. What else is out there, Rhonda, and and, and what do you think is, is particularly pertinent and interesting to marketers?
0: So I think it's really exciting to see how consumer interactions with technology is becoming more and more multi-sensory. And so, you know, we talked a little bit about voice, which obviously appeals to our sense of hearing. Um, but I think one really underexplored area that's that's just starting to get attention is the area of touch which is sometimes known as haptics and so when you think about it consumer interactions with technology are becoming a lot more tactile in nature whether it be the fact that touch screens are now the dominant user interface or the fact that wearable technology is literally plastered onto our skin almost 24 hours a day or the fact that the Internet of Things means that our entire tangible world is now essentially has the potential at least to be a connected device means that there's a lot of tactile richness in Uh, consumer technology interactions that didn't necessarily exist before. Uh, And I think Some brands and some products are doing interesting things with this. So one example of the sense of touch being used in an interesting way is uh, the happy fork, which is a fork that buzzes if you're eating too quickly to remind you to slow down and eat more slowly. (laughs) Um, Another example is the Lumo sensor, which is a clip-on sensor where if you slouch, it buzzes to tell you to sit back uh, straight or stand up straight. And so in these ways, kind of technology is almost acting as this coach by actually physically nudging us um, in a certain way. In some of my own research, I've found that people interpret messages that come accompanied with touch even if it's through a basic vibration uh, that people interpret those messages more positively they feel like the sender cares more than if it came with just a basic beep for example and that's because there's something about the sense of touch that's really uniquely associated with intimacy because typically while you can see or smell or hear somebody from a distance our sense of touch usually requires somebody to be within our peripersonal space, and so there's this association with touch and closeness that really the other senses can't necessarily evoke, and so that makes it really powerful in shaping consumer responses. One last example uh, I'll mention in terms of new ways brands are evoking touch through technology is the use of haptic feedback in some mobile advertising. And so some brands have begun experimenting with how they can uh, use the fact that now we're holding phones in our hands all the time to add a haptic component to advertising and storytelling. So whereas Screen sizes are getting smaller, and people often have mobile phones on silent, and there's kind of a reduced ability to communicate visually or auditorily. You know, uh, Stoli Vodka, for example, has mobile ads where you actually feel your phone shake when the woman shakes a cocktail, uh, or there are ads uh, for the, uh, the television show Homeland where you actually feel every explosion in your palm through the phone's act. Uh, haptic actuator. And so these are ways that um, we're kind of adding a new dimension of storytelling, not just through ads, because this has been done in gaming for a long time, but uh, hadn't really been done in advertising before.
1: So you've said that the um, that the sense of touch in your research has, has shown that there's a more positive reaction to touch versus voice. You know, when it comes to a brand using touch in its advertising or in its interactions with consumers does it tap into any other emotions or does it help to make the brand feel more salient? Does it, how else, what else could a brand tap into or what could they expect from the use of touch?
0: Well, it's really interesting because in some research that I've started doing with one of my uh, co-authors, we found that while touch generally exerts positive effects because it's so linked to closeness and intimacy, If it's being evoked by kind of a stranger brand, an unfamiliar brand, or a brand that you don't like as a consumer, then it actually has this polarizing effect where you feel like it's very invasive that you've been, you know, quote unquote, touched, whether that be through uh, haptically augmented advertising or through other means. It's generally been said that we currently are living in a kind of touch-starved world where the majority of consumers feel touch-starved because so many of our interactions happen digitally. We react to touch positively most of the time, but not necessarily to kind of a stranger's touch or to kind of creepy touch. (laughs) (laughs) Let's
2: go back to a point you mentioned earlier around empathy and and, and in some sense how technology is not there yet with empathy, but, but how could we get to that point where whether it's robots or it's software or it's a combination, can, um, can be empathetic for consumers. And, and what would the implications of that be?
3: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me.
0: Well, I think we're living in really exciting times in that developments with artificial intelligence are starting to incorporate emotional intelligence as a, a core competency. And so, uh, for example, whether it be through uh, facial recognition, being able, to, a robots now able to kind of recognize the mood that the person it's interacting with is in and respond to that accordingly, or even one sort of relatively more famous robot, which is a robotic seal named Paru, has uh, tactile audition, temperature, posture sensors, so that it can really understand the human it's interacting with and respond in ways that human would prefer and get better and better over time through machine learning. So I think, you know, if we define empathy as the ability to understand a human, um, we're you know, robots are, are, are pretty much there. They're getting better and better. Um, it's really, uh, I think, a little more difficult for them to sort of convey that in a convincing way. Maybe that's where uh, there's still room for, for a lot of improvement. Um, but in some cases, there are apps that are better at identifying people's facial expressions, for example, than other humans are. Uh, and so you could argue that if, you know, if by the kind of strict definition of empathy, actually, you know, robots right now can be even better than humans um i think it's really interesting to sort of think about how senses might play a role in establishing closer consumer robot interactions and uh, as i mentioned with the robotic seal paru uh, it's it's typically been used currently in hospitals uh, and uh, elderly homes to help patients who have been suffering with depression and dementia who even though they may struggle to kind of relate to other human nurses, have been kind of pouring out their entire life stories to Paru, this, this robotic seal. Um, and what's interesting when you see patients interact with Paru, you know, they stroke him, they hug him, and you can see how despite all his intelligence, and I think right now he costs about $5,000, uh, despite all, all his intelligence, there's this appeal in just really snuggling um, uh, with him. And you know, and typically when we think of robots, we think of these very cool, metal objects but that doesn't necessarily need to be the case and actually the sense of touch can kind of convey that this is a warm sentient being um, in a way that you know
1: you probably wouldn't see people cuddling with this robot if it was uh, metallic it's interesting that you say that because some of the research that we have done um, that actually jwt MindShare and kantar did around voice assistants um, in the last year or so showed that a surprising number of people i think in the 40 percent range, 40 to 50 percent range, have told Alexa they love her, and that a surprising number of consumers actually say one of the key reasons they like having a voice assistant is because they feel like that assistant is there when they come home and they're tired or depressed or sad, and and Alexa or Siri can cheer them up. So it's interesting that, that there's this transference of real human relationship activities or actions onto these non-human things. What's what's behind that? Why are people so willing to attribute human-like stature to a machine?
0: One appeal in these digital assistants, whether they be robots, uh, chatbots, etc., is the fact that you know, they don't have their own needs. They don't have mood swings. They're there to listen to you and empathize, you know, no matter what. And as they get better uh, over time through machine learning, then they're going to be best equipped, probably better than your partner, to cheer you up when you're feeling sad or tell you a joke that they know you'll find funny based on all your past behavior. Share art that they think you'll find moving and beautiful based on all your past behavior. Whereas when we interact with humans, humans are messy. They have bad days. They have their own needs. Um, And so that gets a little bit more complicated. For better or for worse, it is sort of comforting to be able to rely on something that you know is going to be completely consistent because it is, after all, a machine that's been hardwired to perform in a very specific way
2: so in some sense what these devices these robots the software the AI can is is doing is is personalization in in, in some sense and using all of the data that they're they're gathering on us as individuals to deliver custom um, and personal services so that's exciting but from a brand or a marketing perspective I guess I'm also curious about what the risks might be so if, if this is all very exciting and consumers are adopting these technologies and in some sense expecting this, what might a marketer think about or maybe think twice about as they try and make their brands really, really human through technology?
0: Well, I think it's important to recognize as any marketer would differences amongst consumers. And so, you know, one major difference it just comes down to demographics where you see an older generation that doesn't really want to be talking to a machine and which would much rather talk to another human, uh, is much more likely to kind of pick up the phone, whereas you know, their, their teenage child you know, might actually hate that and would much prefer to just send a text or have an online interaction. And so recognizing that different, different consumers have different needs and different preferences when it comes to interacting with technology versus uh, with a real person. There's also a sense that if you've if you've grown up with a technology where you've grown up, let's say, as a child these days, maybe speaking to a device before you even are using a tablet, etc., then there's a certain level of normalcy surrounding that, whereas you're more likely to get creeped out if that, that hasn't been the case. Um, and you're more likely to maybe put boundaries and be kind of... I remember my mother for the first time hearing Google Home at, m- at my brother's house and sort of thinking that it was a really scary technology, you know. I mean, later on she ended up um, adopting it and she actually lives at home and now has a Google Home and you know in a strange way it sort of provides her some companionship and I remember she was saying that uh, recently the internet went down and the house felt so empty not just because you know she couldn't get online but because this voice that was in the home uh, had all of a sudden disappeared. But it's interesting to see or to think about, theoretically at least, how that might change over time. I was once speaking with somebody from, uh, from a Middle Eastern country who told me that when televisions first came out, uh, women who were veiled would actually put the veil on inside the house when the TV was talking just because it felt like there was a stranger in the house. Whereas, you know, obviously over time you've become more used to that technology and that sort of association and that feeling of it being real might Uh, go away. So
1: going a bit further into the impact on brands, you know, a foundation of a brand success is whether or not consumers trust it or not. And, And the foundation of trust is whether or not the brand delivers on what it says it's going to deliver. It delivers on its brand promise or brand purpose. As brands use technology to put a more human quote unquote face out to consumers and actually bring themselves to life in a more human way for consumers. How do you think that's going to impact a brand's ability to build or maintain, or the potential for it to, to more easily destroy trust with consumers?
0: I think as is
1: always the case with
0: marketing uh, and with branding in particular, consistency is key. Uh, and so I think it's really important to maintain an authentic voice regardless of the platform that you're using to connect with consumers. Um, and so, as I mentioned, um, earlier, you know, with the with the example of voice, the idea of creating a voice that's very much linked to your brand's personality and. You know, lots of times people ask me questions like, oh, is a, is a female or male voice uh, better in these contexts or is, you know, d- do consumers want, you know, a, a low pitched or a high pitched voice, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't think it really is that simple because brands are different in terms of their personalities and their promises. And so uh, I think it's just important to main con- maintain consistency across uh, all the platforms, um, regardless of, of which particular technology is being used. I think another interesting thing to think about within the voice space specifically is a brand's name, particularly for new products and brands. Um, it becomes more important than ever that your brand name is easy to pronounce uh, and and to recall, and if possible, that the brand name in and of itself evokes meaning. Uh, and this can be done through Uh, either semantic meaning, so for example, most of us, even if we'd never heard of Nescafe, could probably guess it has something to do with coffee. If we heard the brand name Newsweek, would guess it had something to do with the news, possibly a weekly publication. And so this can be done with semantics, but can also be done with just phonetic sounds because whether we realize it or not, we carry certain associations with sounds. Um, One really interesting uh, area of research looks at phonetic symbolism, which essentially suggests that different sounds are associated with different attributes. So for example, uh, if you hear the name Kiki versus Buba, People typically think of Kiki as being fast, quick, sharp, uh, whereas Booba sounds rounder, slower, richer. Uh, and so, if you kind of think about those back vowels like oo, o, oh, and what meanings that convey, the, what meanings those convey, versus sounds like e, and what meanings tho- those convey, it can shape the decisions you make in terms of product naming and uh, brand names.
2: So I want to think about pitfalls uh, or potential things marketers should be worried about with uh, these sorts of interactions. I'm linking this now to some research you and I are working on with some colleagues at Oxford around chatbots and in a customer service context. So so perhaps you want to speak a little bit to that because I think that gets at this double-edged sword point that you raised earlier.
0: It's really interesting because what we're finding is that, of course, if you're a company and you do have a um, chatbot service, you can, if you'd like, incorporate an avatar so that consumers actually feel like they're talking to a persona uh, or choose not to. And what's interesting is we're finding that if consumers are having a kind of sort of neutral or positive interaction with the chatbot, then when it's more humanized they react more positively. But if they're for any reason angry, like let's say for example, uh, they're calling to dispute a mistake on their on their bill or something along those lines, then the fact that the chatbot is more human ends up being a bad thing and people get more angry than if that avatar, for example, uh, wasn't actually there. And so this sort of of suggests that when there's this a uh, agentic source that we can attribute our anger to, it can actually fuel our anger. Whereas if it wasn't there, anger might be a little bit more muted. And so for companies and brands that might suggest that in service situations uh, where, for example, people are trying to learn more about product attributes or about delivery times or something along those lines where it's more exploratory, having a human-like avatar may in fact be a good thing. Whereas if it's a complaint center or something along those lines, adding that
1: avatar might actually backfire. So would you say that 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 same idea applies to the potential upside and potential downside for brands just in general, if the brand is actually putting a more human-like face on itself, does that amplify the ups and amplify the downs? Absolutely. And so I think as long as
0: you're doing everything right, <laughs> humanizing the brand is always going to be a good thing. But I think for most brands, it's not always as, as easy as that. And it's, you know, there are some times that you're going to Uh, disappoint consumers. And I think if you're able to anticipate the situations where that might be the case, as I mentioned before, with something like a complaint center, then you can very deliberately not humanize those interactions. Um, But of course, it's not always so easy to differentiate or to anticipate why consumers are uh, or how consumers are going to react.
1: So similar to that kind of polarization that you see, either it's either much more positive or much more negative, you've talked about how some consumers are much more open to interacting with technology, either because that's the way they've grown up or it's just the way that they're mentally wired, and other consumers are not so much. And we've one of the things that Kantar Consulting has been looking at is this trend towards consumers almost rejecting the massive digitization of their world and you had also talked about that people are starting to feel touch deprived because everything they do is or so much of what they do is less human to human and more interacting through technology and we see this manifesting in the rise of vinyl record sales in the rise of the the increased or the new growth in actual printed book sales the rise of farmers markets you know, consumers moving back to kind of what the world looked like 10 or 15 years ago. And I guess my question is, from a psychology perspective, are humans wired to move their entire lives into interacting with technology, or is there going to be a point at which it just isn't going to be comfortable for them anymore.
0: So I think there is always going to be resistance with any new technology, uh, particularly with certain parts of the, of the population. Um, one example I really like goes back to, I believe it was Plato uh, who thought books were the worst idea and were going to destroy humanity because people would think that they could write their thoughts down and somebody else would read it and think that they understood what was written when actually they had no idea what the writer actually meant (laughs) and that books were going to destroy kind of the fabric of what makes us human. Um, And you know, most of us today think books are not so bad, not such a a bad thing. Um, And so, you know, if we we kind of try to see parallels in that, I think there is a certain discourse around the idea of technology being dehumanizing. Oh, people are not talking face to face anymore. People are interacting with devices, too much screen time, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the reality is to the extent that these technologies are, you know, make sense for us economically, save us time, are extremely convenient. It's unlikely that they're going to to go away and that we won't be relying on them anymore and so I think while we see these sort of uh, fringe attitudes towards rejecting technologies or adopting kind of more retro uh, products, etc., that that really will be a bit of a fringe tendency, and the mainstream will eventually adopt technology as long as it's adding value.
2: Rhonda, thank you so much for all of your ideas, insights, and and uh, sharing some of your research uh, with us today around this really really interesting topic around how consumers and technology interact, and and we've covered a lot of ground there. So very much appreciate. I guess to me that the takeaway is actually that the devil is in the details and there's lots of little things that these seemingly innocuous and increasingly just ubiquitous sort of day-to-day interactions with technology can do to us psychology and do to consumer psychology so I think marketers need to learn to look into these little things so that they can really understand the nuances
1: yes and this is clearly a really ripe area for marketers to be exploring it is going to become an important part of everyone's lives in the future but Just to reinforce the point, there's a lot of potential upside, but there's also some potential downsides. So I think our message to marketers is to, number one, know why you're doing it and pay a lot of attention to what you're doing to make sure this benefits your brand as much as it possibly can.
3: You've been listening to Future Proof, the marketing podcast from Saeed Business
1: School
0: and Kantar. Find more episodes and related content at uk.kantar.com or at sbs.oxford.edu.
2: Thank you.